you have to have truth tellers in your professional mentoring sponsorship, right? So lots of us look for mentors and sponsors that maybe are domain experts. Lots of us look for them that that maybe have careers we wanna emulate. But one important category around that is being a truth teller. Somebody who's really gonna probe and ask you the uncomfortable questions. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 3% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Lead the Team Nation. Welcome. My goodness, I've got a special one in store for you today. We have the Chief Human Resource Officer from IBM, Nicole Lamoureux. Yes. And Nicole leads IBM's people strategy, skills, employee experience, and services, and global HR team supporting more than 250,000 IBMers across 170 countries. Now, in her 20 years, that's right, a 20-year tenure at IBM, Nickel has led HR across organizations ranging from services to software to emerging markets, Supporting the company's business growth through leadership development and talent acquisition, performance management, and skill building. I was about to say thought leadership, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. And previously as VP of Compensation and Benefits, she led the design and deployment of all compensation and benefit programs globally. She was also responsible for the HR activities associated with mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures, and drove the people side of the Red Hat acquisition and y'all can't necessarily see it, but she has a really cool red hat that I asked her about to commemorate that key role that she played. It's kind of hanging in the side of her office here. And wrapping this up, but Nickel holds a Bachelor of Science in Industrial and Labor Relations from Cornell University and a Master's of Business Administration from Duke University. Nickel, welcome to lead the team. It's great to be here with you today, Ben. Well, we're going to have a good one. And by way of introduction, shout out to Seth Dobrin, who is the chief. He's the chief artificial intelligence officer at IBM. He was show 97 on Lead the Team. And he's like, man, you got to talk to Nickel. So uh, y'all check out that episode with Seth. And that was a great introduction. So thanks to him for that. And so one of the things I want to get started off on here was a really cool article, a very personal article, actually, that you wrote. For fast company, and y'all, it'll and the the link will be in the show notes, so I can check that out. But immediately, it grabbed my attention because it's about a time that you passed on a big promotion, but yet you still found a way to grow your career. So, what's the scoop with that? Yeah, Ben. You know, uh, this is a question I get asked a lot. Being in HR, people always come to me around how do you grow your career? How do you get to the C suite? Sometimes they ask me, how do you make more money? And I everyone wants to know that. Yeah, everybody wants to know that. No, but what I Hmm. think I've learned over the last 20 years are a couple of things. 
And the first maybe foundational piece of this is to really understand what's important to you. And I know you may be rolling your eyes. Some of your listeners may be saying, okay, well, get, get to the meat of it. How do I make more money? But the reason why I always ask to kind of start with that question mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. you can get caught up in a lot of things that you think are important or that the organization thinks are important or your friends think should be important for you. But what's really important to you? And a couple of times over my career, mm. I've gotten this wrong. And that's some of what I relate in the Fast Company article. So as an example, I did pass on a promotion and it was for a very simple reason. I wanted to have another baby and Mm. I needed to come back to the United States to do that. So um, I was in on assignment in Shanghai, China. They wanted me to stay on, take on a bigger role. And I wanted to be closer to family. And so I did pass on that promotion. And a lot of people may have said, well, didn't that railroad you or sideline you? No, it actually made me a better employee because I was more satisfied about Mm. what I was doing in my personal life to then focus as appropriate on on my professional life. Another time where maybe, and so that was a time where I think I did it right. I was very clear on what I wanted. Um, one of the times I didn't do it as as well, fast forward maybe five years later from that experience, at that point in my career, if I was really honest with myself, looking myself in the mirror about what did I care most about, hmm. I would have said status. In fact, I joked that uh, I may have even passed or taken a pay decrease in order to get promoted. That's what I cared most about. About, I wanted to tell friends and colleagues and prior classmates that I had gotten a big job. So I went to talk to my manager about it. And mm. in that conversation, I thought I was crystal clear. But I was also a little embarrassed to say I cared about status. So even though I thought I was crystal clear, at the end of 30 minutes, my manager thought I wanted a pay increase. So came back about a week later with, with a pay increase but not a promotion. And it was a quick lesson that I learned about be clear, be unapologetic about what it is that it's important to you. And and that may change over time. It may be autonomy. It may be flexibility. It may be money. It may be status. It may be work-life balance. All of those things are very valid. I think what we need to do as employees is make sure that we're being honest with ourselves about what those things are and what we need to do as employers is create safe space for employees to admit that, to talk about it and have those conversations. So that's some of Mm. what I've kind of learned about career progression. It's not necessarily about following a ladder, following steps. It's about at every certain point in your career, being clear and honest about what you want and finding out if your organization can give you that. So many great things to dive into. So thank you first for sharing both those stories. Again, very honest and transparent, which is a great quality to have in a leader, especially in a leader of 250,000 employees. So your advice moves the needle, you know, for a lot of people. Um, I, I think that 
the whole move and talking about like people thinking they want money and they're not really clear on what they really want and they follow the money train and it gets them in a situation where they're kind of off doing something that they didn't want to do in the first place and they don't feel like they can take a reduction in pay to go pursue or take an or, or do something different in the company. Yeah. So it's, you know, some people call that the golden handcuffs. So it's so important, I think, to understand. I think you just really nailed it right there. It's important to understand what you really want and to be honest about it. Like if you want the job title, don't be bashful about it. Articulate that. Uh, so from your process standpoint, and maybe it's evolved over time, when you're thinking about for yourself, what you really want uh, in, in your career now. I mean, it seems like you're at the pinnacle of the HR profession, uh, but what do you, you know, what, what is your own process for understanding what you want nowadays? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I want nowadays, and then I'll also tell you uh, kind of my my process for that. So two things are most important to me at this point in, in my career and, and where I am. One is challenging, difficult, cutting edge work. I, I really care about the work that I do and uh, like doing the hard stuff. And it's been interesting been, being a CHRO during the pandemic. Lots of hard stuff in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the second yeah. thing that I care most about is the people I get to work with. Hmm. And uh, at this point, that is really what gets me up in the morning. The team, I have an amazing HR team, but as you've mentioned, there's also 250,000 IBMers around the world that get me excited about coming to work every day. So that's kind of what I want. But how do you really have honest conversations with yourself about that? Because there's always all mm. kinds of extraneous factors, like you said, you know, feeling like you need to take or or chase the money or feeling like, is it okay to say work-life ba- balance matters to me? You know, will that take me off track? Um, I have- yeah, a- You don't get to the C-suite because you're looking for work-life balance necessarily. Right. And so just being honest about that. So here's how Mm. I have evaluated over my career. Mm I I am, you have to have truth tellers in your professional mentoring sponsorship, right? So lots of us look for mentors and sponsors that maybe are domain experts. Lots of us look for them that that maybe have careers we want to emulate, but one important category around that is being a truth teller, somebody who's really going to probe and ask you the uncomfortable questions. Nickel, really? Are you sure you like challenging work? Because two weeks ago, I saw you kind of backing away from this hard problem on the table or whatever the situation may be. Mm. I hope none of my colleagues are saying that. So whether you find those individuals in mm-hmm. the workplace seek out a mentor who's really going to look you in the eye and and have those conversations or several um know that you know my husband and I have three teenage children nobody is a truth teller like teenage children so um they also kind of keep me in check and probe and push and uh you know ensure that that I'm being honest with myself mm. so what is it, what's your advice for leaders who are like Truth tellers, like where do where do I find that? Maybe because I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking two different parties. I'm thinking about 
sort of the up and coming leaders who were like, I go to happy hour and we just kind of complain about stuff and hang out. But I wouldn't say they were telling the truth about my career because I'm not really hanging out with people that have careers that really aspire to. Or the flip side is you have senior leaders who were like, I don't, I don't like my team is they're supportive of me and they're bought in, but I would not call them truth tellers. They're, you know, because they seem to say yes to everything that I, <laughs> that I'm asking for. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And and look, um there's two pieces of advice on I would mm-hmm. say on on finding truth tellers. One, don't let the hierarchy dictate who the truth tellers are. Sometimes we say, mm-hmm. "Oh, go to a senior leader, they'll be a truth teller to you." I will tell you, some of the people that have been most honest with me have been new hires into IBM or maybe someone early in their career who said, Nickel, you said this and it did not resonate at all. So don't let the hierarchy dictate where you seek these truth tellers out. Mm. And then secondly, at a very practical level, think about asking somebody a question. Maybe Ben, when I finish this podcast with you, some of the team that may listen, I might put a question out to 20 people that listen to it and say, what could I have done better? Hmm. 18 of those people might come back. No, Nickel, you were great. You were fabulous, Nickel. You're perfect. (laughs) No mistakes. Who who comes back with Hmm. real feedback? And I do that after meetings. Hmm. You might do that after a client presentation. You might do that after a piece of work that you've submitted. Seek out a group of people and then find out with who really comes back with a thing that was maybe speaking the uncomfortable truth. Same so do thing. an experiment amongst yes. your yeah. immediate peers. And uh, I, I just love that because then you really know. And it's just, you know, feedback is not giving feedback. I don't think our, all people are not inclined to naturally do that. And you have to be trained uh, to do that. And sort of the number one problem in giving feedback is is our own egos. Exactly. Uh, giving and receiving it. Yeah, it's such, such a difficult place uh, uh, to do that. But, but I like that. I think it's such a proactive way to go and get this honest feedback and, and truth tellers. Do you, do you ever use coaching or anything along those lines? Is that something that uh, that's been helpful Uh, to your career? Of course. And I, and I think here's the other thing I think that's important. A lot of people say, you know, one mentor sponsors, coaches, I have them all. This is about having a team. You often hear them called as the board of advisors for your career, (laughs) you know, so don't, don't kind of hang your hat on one person. Lots of people can play different roles. I think coaches have a very important role that they can play. Um, I think mentors and sponsors do. Now, all three of those people can be truth tellers, but you may even want to put on your board of advisors somebody who solely plays that role as a, as a truth teller. Um, but think about your career as kind of collecting that board of advisors. They can be internal or external to your, your company. Mm-hmm. They can be in your industry. They can be outside of your industry. They can be somebody that you might respect for maybe a very specific skill. Maybe it's around communications. Maybe it's depth in a, a domain. But having that collection 
is where I think you get the best advice. I like that. Take a team approach. And we do uh, sometimes like we're over-reliant on our spouses for feedback or <laughs> we, and we burden them with that. I'm not saying you as it, do that, but I certainly have, I'm, I'm always wary of that. Like just talking, talking, talking about, about that. We need to be talking about things that we have fun with, like Alabama football or something like oh, that versus Alabama just worse stuff. That <laughs> 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 came to mind. But 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 building that team, realizing you need more than one person to really help give you that well-rounded feedback uh, is and one of the things I'm curious about when you're sort of asking about what, going back to your original question that I think is so powerful, what do you really and truly want? Um, do you have a reflection process that you go through or is, is it just in these conversations with these truth tellers that you find to be so helpful? Um, it's, it's kind of varied over the years. Um, I'll be honest, early in my career, I probably didn't have those reflection periods often enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd go a long time without kind of taking stock. Yeah. Now, at this point, I get into a little bit of a cadence on a quarterly basis. So think about mm -hmm. it just like a company that might be evaluating their financial performance on a sure. quarterly basis. Because I think that if you judge yourself on any one day, you might over-rotate to what just happened in that moment. So if you mm. think about over a quarter, think about the work that you've done, think yep. about how you've shown up personally and professionally, and, and really evaluating over that period of time, what made you most excited? Where'd you grow the most? Where were you kind of not that excited to get involved. That starts to give you a picture. It's the exact same advice that I give. You talked about work-life balance. And um, I think the pandemic was a hard reset for so many people mm -hmm. to evaluate their professional and their personal lives and what do they want. I give the same advice on work-life balance. On any one day, particularly if you're in a big or a high-pressure job, you can be totally out of balance. You can be saying, oh, I've spent way too much time at work. I haven't seen my family in three days. Or if you're like me, you might have young, sick kids at a period of time and say, oh, I haven't nearly given enough to work. I've spent so much time at home. Don't, again, evaluate your work-life balance on any given day. Look over a 90-day period, just like this point on reflections and what are you getting out of work. And then you can always course correct at the end of it. I think it gives you a broader perspective. Well, I sure do like that. And it's so easy from a professional perspective on work-life balance to beat ourselves up. I can remember back, you know, when I was back, you know, working for a, a Fortune 50 company specifically. And even now today, as running my own business, it's just, if you look at it on a day-to-day -day basis, it can get discouraging. You're like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing this for? Like, who am I impacting? What I'm, uh, where's the degrees of freedom here? And if you look over even a week or a month or even a quarter, you can really make sure and evaluate if things are going up and to the right from a work-life balance exactly. standpoint, a business success standpoint, a career standpoint. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. 
Go to benfanning.com slash insight. When it comes to work-life balance, I mean, you mentioned three teenagers. Wow. Holy smokes. Uh, that's a lot. When's the time that your work-life balance was tested? And what was what what's some other advice maybe that that you would give to to leaders in that in a similar situation? Yeah. Um shortly after I became an executive for the first time, I um was in a job that required a significant amount of travel. So think about it, you know. Every other week trips to Asia, I spent a lot of time uh, on planes. I was uh, away from home a lot. I was leaving on a Sunday, coming back on a Friday. And at that point, my children were between the ages of, you know, think about three and and nine. And um, I really felt like I had to prove myself in the new executive job. And I really felt... Mm. I, as I mentioned to you, I get energized by being out with teams. So I I felt this really big tug to, to do that. But after about a year of doing it, I also felt pretty disconnected from my family. And was I showing up particularly for my young children in, in all the right ways? And luckily, I have a very forgiving husband um, who, you know, kind of walked me through this. And at the time, I also had a really supportive boss. So this was, again, as an example, I wish it hadn't taken me a year. But after a year of of coming up hard against this, I had a conversation with my boss, Mm. to which my boss said, Nickel, you don't have to travel that much. I thought you wanted to. I thought you liked it. (laughs) Um, And so it's a good example of in any organization particularly if you're in a large organization, the organization is not going to set boundaries for you. You have to do that. And I think that was a really important lesson I learned and allowed me to to kind of pivot. I then made decisions about, hey, I'm only going to travel once a month. Then maybe I'm only doing the, the Asia flights every other month. And it allows you to really adjust. But this idea of you need to be the one to set the boundaries of what's important to you was a really important lesson for me. Wow. So many great learning learnings in there. And on the flip side, work-life balance doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, you got to have that conversation with your boss. Yeah. Uh, and I I do feel like there's so many, uh, so many times we as individuals make all these assumptions about what we have to do, but, uh, you know, undertaking the time to have the conversation, sometimes you're really surprised. Like you don't have to do that. You can still deliver, uh, you know, and, and if we're not sure how you can deliver without traveling all that, all that much, then maybe we can have a conversation on how we get more creative. Exactly. Exactly. And, and again, you're, you're so right about, I think we make a lot of assumptions about what we have to do. Um, and it, it's always good to open those doors of communication. And and look, I think another thing that has happened to challenge that was candidly COVID. Mm-hmm. I think we had a lot of assumptions in a pre-pandemic environment about 
what employees, employers needed to do, how you had to show up at work, what you needed to do, limitations of technology. Some of that may be true to much smaller extent, though, than we originally thought at the beginning of the pandemic when we were forced to try it and do it. Well, IBM has been hybrid, right, for a long time, way before Way before hybrid was cool or whatever, you, you know, <laughs> IBM was at least in some domains doing that. A lot of leaders listening to this, they're just now going down this road. And the number one thing, I work with a lot of, a lot of organizations and teams around this issue that's coming up, which is trust and connection. You're yeah. you're bringing in people they've never even met. A lot of their team face to face. I interviewed the. Uh, uh, some some several executives who, who changed jobs during the pandemic still haven't met their global team face to face. So uh, how does like IBM for a release or maybe just from your own playbook? What do you do when you got a global team? You're not seeing them in person, but you need to build trust and connection quickly, or else how how are you going to get the work done? Yeah, and Ben, I will tell you this: this is very real for us. So right now, thirty five percent of our global workforce was hired during the pandemic. 35%. All they've really ever known of of IBM is this virtual hybrid ways of working, depending on the country they're in, you know, maybe they came back to the office or got locked down again. So we've really had to figure this out quite quickly. And couple pieces of advice, maybe just to lay the land on, on IBM, because we have a lot of different job roles. You know, we're hardware, software, services, sales company. We have mm-hmm. manufacturing. Those employees are essential workers. They can only do their job <laughs> in an office. Mm-hmm. We have other employees that as long as they're near an airport and can get to clients and a subject matter expert when needed, they can be remote. And then we've got about 70% of our employees that live in this world, exactly what you are talking about, this hybrid world. They might be near an IBM office, but whether they go in on any given day really depends. And so Mm -hmm. first piece of advice that I give to any companies out there is let the work dictate the schedule. It's easy to explain to a manufacturing employee or a quantum computing engineer. You can only do your work in the office. (laughs) You know, it's hard when you start saying everybody must come into the office and they think, but wait a minute, my job can be done remotely. So you've got to make sure that the Hmm. work is dictating. And then two, you need to explain the why. You could argue that my job, human resources, global company, I never need to be in the office. Nickel, do your job remotely. You can interact over video conferencing. But I want to come into the office. And so why? What are we going to do when we're in the office? And what can we do when we're away from the office? This really is about work design. And I know that may sound like a very gorpy, detailed HR term. But we need to think about work design in new ways. For many um, workers, how do you think about what they can do remotely? And how do you think about what would best be done for your point of collaboration, brainstorming, Mm -hmm. thought-provoking work, what can be done together? 
I think trust is required for the remote work. And I think that connectedness is an important piece of the work that's done in person. Hmm. Yeah, it's like a you really, as a leader, need a customized, tailored work playbook based on the job versus taking what might be the easier approach in the short term, which is, all right, everyone's going to be online from this time to this time. And yeah. that's it. And one of the, I, one of the things that I, uh, I heard in one of your interviews uh, that we're doing for the, for the prep for this was someone asked, well, you say don't focus on uh, the how or the where, but focus on the when. Yes. And so for leaders who've been, I mean, we're in a hybrid world of thinking about how, and you actually explained, we're thinking about how too much. Uh, we're need to think about when. So for the listeners here, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think this is a great question. We talk about hybrid work. Usually the conversation is, as you say, dominated about where are people going to work? Are they going to be in the office? Are they going to be at home? How many days? And then we start thinking about the how. Well, there are days they're not in the office. You know, what technology are we going to use? How are we going to collaborate when they're in the office? What does the space look like? It's all about the how. I think not enough time is being spent on when. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is we all have things that are important to us outside of work. And when you talk to a lot of people about the pandemic, and well, again, there were many difficult things about the pandemic, but flexibility in hours is one of the things that was a positive of the pandemic. I'm at home or I'm not commuting. If I need to exercise during lunch, if I want to go play with my pet for 30 minutes, I have the time to do that. If I want to take my kids to the school bus or pick somebody up after work. I have mm -hmm. the time and the flexibility to do that. I think that can also exist in a hybrid work environment. Mm. Even when teams are in the office, I think they need to spend time on what are the core collaboration hours? Mm -hmm. And it, let's say, let's say it's 10 to three. That's when we're all going to come together. We're going to get work done. Now I will tell you, Ben, you may be a morning person, so you may be in there at seven and you may decide to leave at three so you can get on with your That's day. Me. I'm definitely a morning person. Okay. Well, I will tell you, I am not a morning person. So I would be rolling in <laughs> right in at 10, uh -huh. not a minute before, but I might be willing to stay later. Yeah. And I think that allows that individual flexibility while also having a team understanding of when we need to be together as a team. So again, I think the when component of this is extremely important. There you go, leaders. Right from Nickel here, start with that question. When do we need people in and when we have more flexibility? Go from there. Uh, sort of last little part of this, and I mean, I've got so many darn questions, but we're not, we're not gonna have enough time for this. But something that's really struck me about IBM, which which you've been a part of for 20 years, and I would love to dive more into that, but I've got to <laughs> ask you about this whole, whole idea of the new-collar workforce and some of the stuff that IBM's doing right now. Um, because we're 
for, for listeners, we're sort of on the tail end of the pandemic. Maybe uh, we, we think we're kind of, we kind of are, but the, we hope, but we hope that the great resignation has happened and now the dynamics are changing a little bit, but this new collar deal where people have struggled to get employees in their roles, IBM has been very, uh, proactive on this. So how do you define a new collar worker and what are, you know, what's some advice for leaders who don't really take advantage of this? Yeah. So, uh, and Ben, as you say, this is something that I am very proud of IBM's history on. I am personally very passionate about and privileged to kind of build on, on the legacy that, that IBM set on this. Every industry Virtually every company is dealing with skill shortages. There's not enough labor, and there's lots of dynamics around this population mm-hmm. dynamics in, in some uh, countries, even choices out of the pandemic that people are making about whether to be in the workforce or, or not. But one of the things that we're finding is despite these shortages, many organizations are still pretty narrow and where they source talent from, particularly when we think about what we would have typically called white-collar jobs or knowledge worker jobs. Many organizations, particularly here in the United States, require a four-year college degree for a Mm -hmm. vast majority of their roles. And what we've done at IBM, and we've been on this journey for almost a decade, is We've taken the approach of a skills-first hiring approach. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that degrees don't have their place. But if we think about the statistics today, 62% of the U.S. adult workforce does not have a bachelor's degree. Mm. So if you require a bachelor's degree for every Every one of your jobs, you've already narrowed the pool of potential qualified yeah. applicants, and maybe arbitrarily. A good example that I use is as an example, and I know you talked to Seth, our uh, chief AI officer. Um, mm-hmm. If I need somebody who knows Python to fill a job at IBM, do I care if they got a bachelor's degree in computer science? or if they learned Python in the military, or Mm. taking community college classes, or maybe they stayed at home and taught themselves on the internet. (laughs) As long as they have that skill, they're qualified to do that job. And I think that's the different approach companies need to take, not Mm. only because it will help them with the skill shortage, but it's also going to open the aperture of the type of candidates that they're able to attract into their organization. We also, mm. you know, unfortunately know that as you look at those individuals without a college degree, they are disproportionately in underrepresented commu- communities. Absolutely. Already excluding a very viable portion of the workforce. So something that we're really passionate about, and just so you don't think that this is just pie in the sky strategy, if you look at IBM's job openings right now, over 50% of our job openings do not require a college degree. And if you look at our existing Hmm. workforce, 
you know, we've been at this at a little while. We went from, you know, maybe one or 2% of our employees that didn't have a college degree. We're now at over 20%. So it shows you that you can provide, you know, more opportunities and expand the talent pool that you're looking at. Huge, huge thing for people to wake up to. And I don't think this is just an IBM opportunity. I mean, you, you, y'all are kind of ahead of the curve on it, but the, the reality that people learn in different ways yes. and people, some people need to sit in a classroom and they need that lecture approach because maybe that's what they grew up with. But my 11 year old is Googling and you on YouTube all the time and teaching herself all kinds of craft activities. And it's amazing to me, you know, what she can do. And I know in my field, especially in the, in the learning and training, I mean, we've, there are so many different learning modalities that are very effective, yet they're not really addressed. And I think that by expanding how we train people and what make it available, and even this podcast, I mean, this would not have been available 10 years ago. Right. And you want to learn about becoming a, a successful leader inside an organization. Listen to my interview with Nickel here because you know it's it's available, but it's a whole another thing to say how I guess leaders in the past could say, well, they've got a four year degree uh, and they have a certification in this, we can hire them. I'm comfortable. Versus they've been learning this on the internet. And they've taken the certification, but how do we really know? So they've got to be able to evaluate this in some way. Yeah, And, you know, I think this is, we really are trying to level the playing field. And so you can evaluate skills, not somebody's pedigree, not kind of abstract or unnecessary hurdles we put in place. So you evaluate the skills and that's how we've gotten really a huge focus and, and and a shift in the organization on this. Wow. Fantastic. Last question. What is a tool or gadget that's been helpful to you that you'd recommend for listeners to go out and purchase? A tool or a gadget? Oh, Ben, this is quite the quite the question. Look, um, I think whether it's a Fitbit, Apple Watch, you decide. Uh, I do think this balance around well-being is really important. I think it's easy, particularly if you've got a job like mine or, or you're in an office environment or at home in front of a screen all day. We cannot underestimate uh, wellness. In fact, my chief medical officer talks about mental health and wellness may end up being the second pandemic. And Mm. so making sure you take time to disconnect, getting your steps in, however you track exercise, maybe it's sleep on your device. That's made a huge difference for me, particularly when I was working virtually in the early part of the pandemic, making sure I got away from this computer. Yeah. I I love that. And yes, you you don't have to specifically say a brand uh, because (laughs) you're going to get your first name image likeness deal from this podcast. But I I do think there are tools available that monitor this and and warn us when we've been sitting sitting down in front of the computer for too long. 
Yeah. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a great idea to put that on autopilot so you get those reminders and can take action. Absolutely. So, Nickel, finishing the interview, great job today. What's your parting thought for listeners? Parting thought. So two parting thoughts. First is, as you think about building your career, make sure that you are evaluating what truly is important to you Mm. and that you're being honest with yourself. And if you're not sure, find that truth teller. And then the second piece of it, as you think about leaders, look in unexpected places. Don't just go to the typical places. You might be surprised at what you find. Wow. Great job. Great parting thoughts. Thanks, Nicol. Thanks, Ben. Great to be with you. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.